message this morning. As the kids are being dismissed, ages four years old through fourth grade for Children's Church, we are going to open our Bibles to Revelation chapter number three. Revelation chapter number three. <clears throat> Revelation chapter number three. We're working our way through the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And we have come to now the fifth letter in the book of Revelation. But I wanted to start off with an illustration Back in 1921, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was diagnosed with polio, which was a permanently crippling disease. He was 39 at the year, so one year older than me, okay? But many believed that, honestly, his struggle with polio is part of what made him the man that he was. And it wasn't until 1955 that we came out with a vaccine for polio, and it wasn't until the 70s when basically wild polio was eliminated in the United States of America. And the reason we don't struggle with it is because we've become inoculated against this disease of polio. And our text is going to slightly deal with this kind of a concept as we work through the, the fifth letter to the churches in Revelation. So this morning we're going to look at the church of Sardis. There's only six verses to this letter. It's pretty small. But this church has some pretty serious issues. If you remember the other churches that we've talked about, most of them were kind of a mixed bag. You had some good and you had some bad. This one, it's almost completely negative. When Jesus talks to this church, there is, there is nothing listed that is good about the church at Sardis. So it has only, only negative things said by our Lord Jesus Christ. And the letter even begins with this condemnation. And this is really going to be the main theme of our message tonight. Looking in verse number one here, it says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Let's go and open up in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. 
and how it does apply to us in so many different ways. And sometimes we, we don't think about what it means to us practically. But Lord, this, this letter was written to a church that is not unlike many churches in America today. And I just pray that you will open our eyes to the truth of your word. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I, I believe that a lot of churches have, like uh, most of us, we've become inoculated to polio. A lot of churches have been be- become inoculated, really, to the gospel. And the, the main condemnation here in this church is that they have a name that thou livest, but they are dead. A name, a reputation that you are alive, but their real state is that they are truly dead. And that is, that is so true of so many, many churches in America. A lot of times we use that phrase, this is a dead church. We use it wrongly. Okay? What we mean when we say this is a dead church is they're kind of boring or okay, they don't have any zest, any pep to them, so it's a dead church. Or they have five people in, a, in an auditorium of 500. We think of that as a dead church, right? But in this text, when the author of the book, actually it's Jesus Christ here, when he uses this word dead, he's using it more in... Co- consistent terms with the rest of the book of Revelation, he's saying, you look alive, but you're dead. You're dead spiritually, okay? And we'll we'll develop that a little bit further on as we get through the text here. But I think a lot of times we have become inoculated against the gospel in our churches. We have a pandemic in our churches, and it isn't COVID, okay? It is a pandemic of people who believe that they are Christians, and they are not. They say they are Christians, and the reality is not the truth. And if you doubt this to be true, think about this. How many churches out there don't even preach the gospel? They, don't, they, they preach a work salvation. That alone is a symptom that they are dead churches. They say they are Christians, but they are not Christians. And I think we've become inoculated against the gospel for many different reasons. One of them is that we have confused religion with Christianity, Right? We've confused religion with Christianity. The things that we do, coming to church, offering in the offering plate, singing certain songs, or big cathedrals, or different things like that. We've confused the acts of worship with true biblical Christianity, having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, not by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it is not by our works. Christianity is not defined by the good things that you do. And we have confused religion with Christianity. So many churches are dead because they've replaced a relationship with works. But also, we've also confused heritage with Christianity especially in North Carolina and Virginia, where my wife is from, okay? Uh, There are a lot of Baptist churches, but there are a lot of unsaved Baptist churches, okay? Because their basis for their faith, they say, I am a Christian because my grandpa went to this church, I've gone to this church, or my grandpa was a preacher at such and such a church, and that's the first thing that comes out of their mouth because it's what they actually are depending on. It's how they define their religion, their faith, their, their heritage is defined by who their parents are and all these things. So it'd be like the kids saying, I'm a Christian because my parents go to church, okay? And we have confused heritage with Christianity. Also, we've confused, and this one we're more guilty of, we have confused walking down an aisle and saying a prayer instead of true believing faith. How many kids have this testimony? They walked down an aisle, they talked to somebody, and they prayed a prayer, 
And then when they got to be 16, they realized, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. I just did it because all my friends were going down the aisle and they were praying a prayer. And so we've confused the act that accompanies salvation with the salvation, okay? I honestly think this is a slippery slope for independent Baptists because we slip into a works-based salvation here because we confuse the prayer with the faith, okay? Prayer accompanies the act of, of getting saved. It often does, okay? But the faith is what actually truly saves us, and we will talk about that. Actually, let's, let's go ahead. Acts 16, verse 31. Before we delve into our, the rest of our verses here, Acts 16, verse 31, some common verses that we know. <clears throat> but how does a person truly get saved? Is it the prayer that saves them, or is it the faith that saves them? Acts 16, verse 31 says, and they said, on, actually, let's go back, okay? So verse, verse number 30 the, this, the uh, Philippian jailer, he says, and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, this is they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Okay, that is, that is the essence of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through what? Through faith. Okay, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Like I said, prayer is the expression of our faith, but it is not the act that saves us. The faith is what truly saves us. And so we have confused sometimes walking down an aisle and saying a prayer and, and thinking that magically saved me, but the faith is truly what saves us. And that, that's what we need to get to. Oftentimes we also have confused not only heritage, we've confused religion, we've confused walking down an aisle, but we've also confused legalism with holiness. Now, listen to me as I explain this one, okay? We've confused legal, legalism with holiness. One of the hardest parts with dealing with people who say they are Christians is that they know all the right things to say and they know all the right things to do. So at times, it becomes virtually impossible to distinguish them from a true Christian. And the result of legalism, legalism telling them, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will be holy, okay? is that it doesn't teach them that the Holy Spirit needs to transform them and grow them. So people adopt externals on the outside and not the, they don't have the reality on the inside, okay? So here's the danger. Legalism makes it harder to recognize true fruit in a believer versus what the Holy Spirit produces. And so people adopt the culture, the religious culture of the church and produce fake fruits. It's kind of like taking a tennis ball and painting it to look like an apple. Okay, is it an apple? No, but it looks like one on the outside, depending on how good of an artist you are, okay? So it looks like one on the outside, but the reality is not there. And so by this, this idea of legalism teaches us if you just do these things, then you'll be right with God. And so therefore, people adopt all the standards, all the beliefs, all the practices that the Christians in their church practice because they want to fit in with the crowd. It makes it so that they're producing fake fruit. They're just putting on a show. They're putting on the externals and they don't have the internal reality to begin with. And we see this in Matthew chapter seven, verse 20 through 23. Jesus says, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Okay, that's how we know a true Christian, by their fruits. But then notice what he says in the next verse. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is this? These are fruits, right? External, Lord, Lord, saying, Lord, Lord, not all of those who acknowledge me as Lord will enter into heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? 
okay, fruit, right, seemingly, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we not cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then he says, then will I profess unto, unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So we can promote all these things that inoculate people to the gospel, the true saving gospel that they need so much. They think they are Christians because they're acting like one or because they do religious services or because their parents were Christians or because they have a memory of walking down an aisle one day, but they don't really know what it was about. And in, in doing so, we have done them more damage than we have done good. And this is really, I think, the situation at the church of Sardis. The words of Sardis here are a judgment against the church. In Revelation chapter number 3, let's go ahead and read verse number 1. As usual with all these letters, it's divided up into four main sections. We're going to look, first of all, at the description of Jesus Christ in the letter to the church of Sardis. And he says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as we talked about in all these letters, descriptions are not accidental. They are on purpose. They, they apply to the meaning of the letter here. And this description of Jesus is not very long, but it is very forceful about what he is trying to say to them. I think that the main thrust of this description is that Jesus is coming with authority, and, and that authority is seen in the fact that he comes with the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God, you know Revelation uses figurative language. Numbers are often symbolic of something. And seven is symbolic of completion. Okay? It is not necessarily that this is literally seven different individual spirits. There is one Holy Spirit. But theologians have said this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit or the sevenfold spirit of God. And it's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 2, which describes the spirit and says, of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There are seven different descriptions of the Holy Spirit given in that text. But this is intended to say the fullness of the Holy Spirit is coming with Jesus Christ as he approaches these churches. Okay? <clears throat> and if you think about it, how do we define life within a person? You have life because there is the spirit within you, okay? Sometimes we could debate soul, spirit, all that kind of stuff, but you have spirit within you. If a person's dead, their spirit is gone, okay? But Jesus is coming with the Holy Spirit against this church that is dead, that is not alive. But also it says that he comes, or it says here, and um, he hath the seven spirits of God and he hath the seven stars. And we looked at in chapter number one, the seven stars are the seven churches of God. <clears throat> so we've, we've seen that Jesus comes in authority over all of the churches. So he has the Spirit's fullness, and he is coming in authority against this church. That is the description of Jesus Christ in the text. But then the second element of all these letters is the condition of the church. And I think this is where we need to pay the most attention to. But this is going to be in verse 1, the second half here. He says, I know what does Jesus Christ know? Jesus Christ knows everything about us, everything that is hidden, everything that we've said, everything we've done, everything that we've thought. Jesus Christ knows them. He knows the reality. He can see through the fakeness. He can see through this image that they put out there that they are alive. He knows the reality that they are actually dead. 
He says, I know thy works. Now, in most of the churches, like I said, there was a list of positive things, right? There's, I know thy faith. I know thy love. I know thy service. I know how thou hast held fast in spite of persecution. That, this verse does not include that, those positives. He goes straight to the negative here. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. So his main accusation is that they have a name that they were living and that they are dead. Now, if you notice in these six verses, the word name is, reported, is repeated four different times in six verses. This is a main theme, a main thrust that Jesus is talking about here. And in this context, the word name refers to a reputation. You all have reputations. People know you as being a certain type of person. Maybe you're the, the academic scholar, okay? Or you're the football fanatic, or you are the shy person, or the socialite, okay? You have reputations. This church had a reputation that they were alive. They're the ones who have a booming Sunday school program. They have a bus ministry, figuratively, okay? So they have all, they didn't have buses, okay? So they had the bus ministry. They have the big, huge buildings, which none of them met in big buildings back then either. But really what I'm saying is this. They are the ones on the outside that look alive. They are big. They are prosperous. They are bustling ministries, right? And we've talked about this in other letters. Just because a church is big, just because it's doing a lot of things, just because it's well-known does not mean it is a healthy, God, godly church, okay? That is not necessarily a sign of God's blessings on a church. And so the church of Sardis, on the outside, they look alive. They are thriving. But the truth is that they are dead. They are a dead church. <clears throat> and I, I believe that this, this refers to the fact that they don't even preach the gospel. And again, I talked about this, Roman Catholics. What do they teach? Plan of salvation is doing works, right? Um, Church of Christ adds baptism to salvation. The Mormons teach a work salvation. And like I said, some Baptists teach a work salvation. Okay? Adding baptism to the plan of salvation is adding works to salvation. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. And ultimately what he is saying here is that the problem with these people had is that they have a form, a fabricated exterior that looks like it is alive. It has the form of godliness, but they, did, they denied the reality thereof, the reality of the spirits working within their hearts. So this church, first of all, is a church that looks alive, but is dead spiritually. But secondly, the condition of this church, let's look at verse number four. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There were some Christians, true believing Christians within this church. There was a remnant within this church of people who truly had faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith was manifested, according to the text here, it says that they uh, have not defiled their garments, their, their faith was manifested in the way that they lived, the fruit that they brought forth. <clears throat> so there were a few, there was a remnant within the church who are true believer, believers within the church. And verse number five says, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. So these few names are the same ones as those who are overcomers, 
because they are clothed in white raiment. They are unspotted from the world. And we've looked at 1 John chapter 5, but let's go ahead and turn there again just to establish this premise here. 1 John chapter number 5, verse number 4. Who are those who are overcomers? That's ultimately what we've got to ask, okay? Who are those who are overcomers? 1 John 5, verse number 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. I believe 1 John 5, verse 4 establishes the idea that true believers are the overcomers. Those who truly have faith in Jesus Christ, all of them are the overcomers. So when he talks about the few, the remnants, those who overcome and will be rewarded, who is he talking to? He is talking to true believers who have true faith in Jesus Christ. As opposed, contrasted with, those who look alive but are truly dead. And this is, this is the state of the church here. The, there are a few believers who truly have faith and their faith is manifested in their actions. Notice in verse number five, the point that Jesus is trying to get across in Revelation chapter three, verse number five. <clears throat> he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Actually, let's go back to verse four. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The evidence of their faith is seen in their actions. Weist Fanning in his commentary on Revelation says, genuine faith is seen in behavior that shows forth the new life that is within. This is consistent with the rest of, of the New Testament. Jesus uh, taught this, but also 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As a believer, we are made new. We are transformed. Our faith, inevitably, without fail, will manifest it to some extent by a changed life. Because we are transformed by Jesus Christ. There is a fundamental change in a person who has truly placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And in Sardis, there are only a few of these people. There are only a few who are manifesting their true faith by the way that they were living. So we've seen the description of Jesus Christ, we've seen their condition, okay? But then let's look at the solution found in verses two through three. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. To the church as a whole. Remember, these letters were written to the church, okay? So it's given to the church as a whole. That includes those who are truly saved and those who are truly not. And he says here, first of all, they are to be watchful. The idea is to be awake so that you can see what is going on, Okay? A lot of times churches slip into this apostasy, into neglecting the gospel because of carelessness, because they aren't awake, they aren't paying attention. Things are changing in their churches and they're not aware of it. Um, illustration of this, in the city of Sardis, Sardis was once the capital of the Lydian kingdom in that part of Turkey, and they had an impregnable fortress, okay? And the Persians actually came against them a couple times, but the Persian army encamped around them and put a siege to them. 
but there was plenty of food and water. They were going to last for a long time. And it basically, the city was impossible to take. And the Persians sat on the outside saying, there's nothing we can do. But one day, one of the Persian scouts looks up at the walls, um, probably around the backside of the castle, and he sees a watchman at the top of a tower who starts nodding off, starts falling asleep, okay? And his helmet falls off. It almost sounds like a cartoon, okay? <laughs> his helmet falls off, but this is a real story. His helmet falls off, goes all the way to the ground. All of a sudden, the watchman disappears for a second, walks down some stairs, comes out this secret little tiny door at the bottom of the castle, gets his helmet, crawls all the way back up to the top of the castle, okay? Well, now the scout knows this is a secret way into the castle. We can get in this way. So they besieged the other side of the castle as a distraction and sent in their special forces through that small secret entrance, and they took the city. They were able to conquer it. But why did that happen? Because they were not watching. He was falling when he should have been watching. And then the city was able to be taken. All of this because someone who should have been watching was falling asleep. So the author here tells them to wake up. Stop fooling yourselves and take this seriously. What, true, what truly matters in the church was slowly slipping away without them even noticing. So first of all, he says, be watchful. Secondly, strengthen what remains. To firm it up. To There's a little bit that's left. Let's prop it up. Let's make it solid. Let's reinforce what is left. So much had already slipped away in their churches. Don't let the rest of it go by. Notice he says here that they are even ready to die. That's how bad things had gotten in this church. It is to the point where even what is good that is left is ready to die, to pass away, to, to be eliminated, so that this church would not have a remnant. They would have nobody who is saved within this church. And so he tells them to strengthen or to firm up the little bit that remains. But how do we do this? How do we firm up what little bit remains? <clears throat> and is ready to die. He says in verse number three, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. So here really we have a threefold solution to this problem. Remember, first of all, what thou hast received and heard. Jesus is calling them to remember the gospel. Remember the message that you, the true Christians, have received and you have heard. These are the, remember that which you have received, okay? The gospel in a nutshell is mankind has sinned against God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That sin has to be punished. God is a just God and sin has to be dealt with. Hebrews 9.27 says, as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Okay? There is a judgment awaiting us because of our sin. And Romans 6.23 tells us what that punishment is. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin, the payment, the paycheck for our sin is death. Okay, And in the book of Revelation, that death is defined as a spiritual death and eternal death in the lake of fire. We'll see those verses in a second here. But then the gospel. Jesus came to pay for our sins. Because we are guilty, because we deserve judgment and we will be judged. Jesus came and he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, 
if ye keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Basic, bare definition of the gospel, Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again, according to the scriptures, for our sins. And we can be saved by believing in that gospel. Now, if we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, he will, for, he will save us and he will forgive our sins. Mark 1.15 says, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What should you do because of that? Repent ye and believe the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And this is what they had fallen into allowing to slip away in their midst. So they are to remember it. Don't forget it. Don't lose sight of this. This needs to be central in our churches. And all, not just for the lost, but it needs to be central for the believer. Everything that we do ties back to the gospel at some point. It ties back to the gospel. <clears throat> so they are to remember it, but they are also to hold fast to it. Don't move away from it. Hold on to it. Grasp it. Stand on it. Okay? And then he says to repent. Repent of that which is drawing you away from this thing that you have received and that you have heard. The message is one that we need to remember. Don't forget this message. It's necessary for the lost to hear the gospel, but the Christian must not lose sight of it as well. There are a few reasons we shouldn't lose sight of the gospel that's given. I'll give you a couple that are my opinion and one that's in the text here. First of all, and actually my opinion is derived from the text, so first, the first reason we should not forget the gospel is the lost will die and go to hell if they do not hear this message. We must be consumed with a desire to preach the gospel because people's eternal destiny is at stake. When a church moves away from the gospel, what do they automatically start doing? They stop preaching it. They stop giving it to them. If you truly grasp in your heart the truth of the gospel, you will preach it, okay? This is an this is absolute relationship here. If you truly grasp it, you are going to preach it. If you're not preaching it, you're not grasping it. You've moved away from it. You're not holding on to it. You're not remembering it, okay? And if the, the, the lost need this message, and we must preach it to them. If we don't, they have an eternity of hell to look forward to. But also the gospel is the basis for all Christian living. Why is it that we forgive one another as believers? Because Christ forgave us, right? That's the basis. Why is it that we treat everybody equally within the church? Because in Jesus Christ, we have all been made one in Christ, okay? We, we are all one in him. Why should we live holy lives? Because Jesus paid for our sins and freed us from the power of that sin. All of this is gospel related, okay? Why should we attend church? Because Jesus has united us with other believers through his death, burial, and resurrection. All of these things can be traced back to the gospel. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of what we are to be and who we are supposed to be. So if we stray from the gospel, not only will the lost die without our Savior, but we will not live the Christian lives that we should be living. But the third reason, the one that's given in the text here, is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Verse number three. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. As Christians, we like to talk about the rapture as a good thing, something to look forward to, and it is for Christians, okay? And sometimes I think we've messed up and we've used these verses to talk about the rapture when actually they're talking about 
the second coming, which is preceded by the rapture, okay? But these, these verses throughout the New Testament are almost always negative. When Jesus says, I am coming back as a thief in the night, it is a negative statement. It is not positive. It's not something to look forward to for the person who is receiving this message, okay? We've seen this type of language in Matthew chapter number 24, verse 42 through 44. It says, watch therefore, for you know not what hour the Lord doth come, but know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would have suffered his house to be broken up or would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. First Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 4. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And now this is key verse right here. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4 says, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. This reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which for the lost is a time of judgment. Okay, you, The tribulation, that's all judgment on the earth. That Jesus coming in the second coming is coming to mete out judgment upon those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. <clears throat> so the second coming is basically saying judgment is coming. And now when you think of a thief who comes in the night, thieves don't come in like Mr. Beast to give you a million dollars, okay? They come in to steal what you have, to take it, okay? It's a negative thing. So we see, first of all, that it's unexpected. We're not aware of it. We're not anticipating it, okay? And it is hostility. It is against us that the thief is coming, okay? The illustration of a thief in the night speaks of that unexpectedness and that hostility. Verse number four, though, of 1 Thessalonians 5 was key. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. As believers, we are not in darkness. It's not a threat for us. We have the gospel. We have Jesus Christ as our Savior. So he is not coming against us in judgment. But he is coming in judgment against those who do not have the light who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It'll be unexpected for them, and it will be hostile to them. And then Jesus says on here, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. In Greek, this phrase, thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee, is actually a double negative. Now, in English, if I say I'm not, not going to the store, I mean I'm going to the store, okay? Because <laughs> so, the knots cancel each other out. But in Greek, they make it more emphatic, more, more so the truth. And he is, as, in essence, saying they absolutely will not be aware of it when I come upon them. Totally oblivious to what is happening. And that is, that is what they have to look forward to. If, they do not, if, if the church does not repent and the church remains filled with lost people, Jesus Christ is going to come and they will be left behind. And they will suffer his judgment. And they will not even be aware of what has happened because he came as a thief upon them. Now let's look at the results. The results of <clears throat> repenting. It says here in verse number three. Sorry, verse number three says, If thou therefore shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. That's the negative for the lost here. 
those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But then verses 4 through 6 tells what the results are for those who do know the Lord. He says, Thou hast a name, a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So he says here to the few, the few in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, who have manifested true saving faith, the first result, the promise to them is that they will walk with him in pure white. There are a couple things that are mentioned in this. Walking with Jesus Christ, communion, being in the presence of Jesus Christ, having fellowship and relationship with them, with Jesus Christ. But the lost do not have this. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay? Jesus says that the reason that they can walk with him is because they are worthy. Now don't be deceived by how that seems on the surface. There is nothing in you that makes you worthy of walking with Jesus Christ. These are worthy because they have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In, in theological terms, we, we talk about uh, propitiation and we talk about uh, sanctification, all these different big, huge words that are out there. But the theological teaching here is this, that in your account is only a bunch of negatives, right? You're, you're completely in debt. How, I won't ask for any hands on who is over $1,000 in debt, okay, so, but you have only debts in your account. You have no positives, but Jesus Christ came and he died for your sins and paid the penalty that you, that you owe. He was buried and rose again, and what happens there is when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, all the positives, he has all positives, no negatives, get placed into our account. So how are we worthy? It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is on this basis that they can walk with their Savior in pure white. And pure white speaks of holiness because we've been cleansed. We've made, been made pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we are only worthy because of Jesus. So the first result is fellowship with Jesus Christ. The second one is found in the next phrase here. He says, uh, verse 5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Now, this phrase blot out, back in those days, they didn't, they didn't per se use the same type of writing materials that we use. In fact, they used oftentimes animal skins. And they would write on it, and the word literally means to scrape off, okay, or to wipe away. What would happen is they'd take a hard rock or a shell or something like that, and they could scrape the ink or whatever writing uh, utensils, whatever, okay, <laughs> materials that they used to eliminate what was written on the animal skins. And notice here he says, I will not blot out thy name out of the book of life. Now what is the book of life? Revelations tells us in multiple what the book is. Let's turn to chapter 13, verse number 8. Revelation 13, verse number 8. <clears throat> And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So first of all, this book is a book that is the book of the lamb. It's the book of life of the lamb. 
who has been slain for us. Okay, that's, that's part of the, the picture here. Revelation 21, verse 27. Revelation 21, 27. <clears throat> It's talking about the new Jerusalem. It says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in the first verse we saw that all the world's going to worship the Lamb, even those who are not written in the book. Verse 21-27 teaches that in New Jerusalem, only those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life will be able to enter into it. And then Revelation chapter 17 and verse number 8. Chapter 17, verse number 8. <clears throat> the beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And this verse is promising that those whose name is not written in this book of life will be amazed by the, by the beast and by the false prophet, and they will worship him. <clears throat> and so we see that the, the book of life refers to a book of the names of the believers, the true believers. And turning back to Revelation chapter number three, verse, verse number five here, when he says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, this is not a veiled threat. He is not saying that there exists a group of, of Christians whose names will be wiped out, okay? The emphasis, the purpose for this statement is to give them security. He is saying, your name will never be wiped out. That's ultimately the thrust of what he is trying to to say, all true believers will remain in this book. So the emphasis is on the security of the believer. John 6, verse 35 through 40 says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth to me, or giveth me, shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus is saying this. Those who are in my book, those the Father has given to me, they are mine. I will lose none of them, okay? And he says here, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him will have everlasting life. Life that does not go away. Life that cannot be lost, that you cannot give up. This is, a, this is an everlasting life. Jesus Christ is faithfully going to keep his own. So it is not a veiled threat, but it is a promise. But for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, let's turn to Revelation 20. Verse 14 through 15, which again references this book of life again. Revelation 20, verse 14 through 15. <clears throat> says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This book of life is a record of, of the names of every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who has an eternal destiny with Jesus Christ, who has life that cannot be taken away and cannot be lost. These people are secure in Jesus Christ. But the people whose names are not found in that book, according to Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15, is that they will be cast into the lake of fire. So the results here are this. First of all, that Jesus promises communion or fellowship with these people. He will also, he promises them security. I will never blot out your name. But thirdly, he will confess their name before God and the angels. Matthew 10 verse 32 says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. Now, as we have a time of invitation, I'm going to conclude the sermon. If you don't mind standing up, closing your eyes, heads bowed, we'll have the pianist come and play. Understand me today. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this message is not meant to make you doubt your salvation. <clears throat> the Christian is eternally secure in Jesus Christ. 